Welcome to the intersection of Black culture and horticulture with your girl, Cola B. Talking. And guess what, y'all? We Black in the Garden. Hey! Hey, soil cousins. It's your girl, Cola B. Talking, the hostess with the mostest of Black in the Garden. And I am so happy, as I always am. I am just going to announce some of the things right quick because we have a very interesting subject to get into. The controversy, the scandal. You've seen the title of the episode. So, you know, it's about to get very real. On the subject that we're talking about appropriately, I already had the chocolate botanist as a part of the conversation, just filling in as a a very lovely co-host on Black in the Garden. So Derek, just let the people know that you're here so they don't be all startled when when they hear that chocolatey, velvety voice piping. So let them know I'm here so when they hear my chocolate voice, they know I'm in the room Mm. trying something different. (laughs) How are you feeling today? I'm feeling, I can't keep this up. I am feeling great. I am, I was trying to be sultry and suck sexy, but it don't always work. I'm feeling the good. You know, today is a good day. How are you feeling, my dear? I'm feeling similar. And I love that that's the case. Ooh, yes. I would be feeling that much better if I wasn't, if it wasn't like this frustration just beneath mm-hmm. the surface at all of the injustices in the world, including the subject that we're about to get in with the scandal that is involved in chocolate. Some people have even indicated that the hidden ingredient in chocolate is Africa's child slaves. A hidden ingredient is slavery is, is more than pure imagination. It's a very wonky thing to hear and to see. And my God, when you think about the fact that in this year, the year of our Lord and Savior, 2021, you can still run into slavery legit happening across this here globe. It is maddening. And it makes me bitter. It makes me dark. It doesn't make me feel milk. And if you caught all of those there winks that I threw into my language, you get a cookie. It's horrendous to think about. my. I mean, the cookie would, at this point, would not Mm. be chocolate. It would probably be like a butter cookie. Um, uh, Okay, maybe a butter cookie. I was going to say, please don't say oatmeal raisin. I don't do that. Don't do oatmeal raisin. Oatmeal raisin is red flags. (laughs) <laughs> red flags, all a bunch of red flags, oatmeal raisin cookies. Y'all, uh-huh. know. Y'all know the vibe. Y'all know what red flags, that's the trend these days. That's they better. The young kids is doing on the Twitter. So look, before we get into the scandal, let us make sure that we, you know, do a little housekeeping. Sometimes you'll be passing by that same sock that's been on the floor and you just got to pick it up. All right. This is us picking up that sock or go ahead and get that load of clothes out of the dryer, or even better, I know you got that pile of clothes somewhere in your house bothering you. You know who you are. I'm not naming no names, but you know who you are. We finna do some of that. We finna pick up them clothes and we gonna go ahead and fold them up in the way of discussing how support works for the Black and the Garden podcast. Because listen, we are independently owned and operated around here. Some of y'all may be aware that Black in the Garden is a whole LLC. This is business. Hello? Small business, Black business, okay? Intentional. And so I encourage you to be intentional about how you support it, especially if you are able to lend monetary support. 
Patreon is a great way to start. Patreon.com forward slash Black in the Garden is a wonderful resource. You need to go to the show notes so that you can click that thing, unless you're going to type it in the long way, so that you can make your contribution on an ongoing basis for just the cost of a house plant, the cost of a snake plant. Let's be specific. On a monthly basis, you could be supporting the Black in the Garden podcast. And there are certainly some perks for you in Patreon. There is also merch that is available, but not just any old regular merch. We're talking, we got t-shirts. Love those. Get one of those. The forest tea is beautiful for the fall and it would look beautiful on you in the fall. You should get you one or get your friend one, get your mama, get your sister, auntie, pastor. It's all good. But if you really want to get funky, fresh and fly, you need to see about the Black in the Garden coloring experience. It's more than a book. It is an experience. It is featuring about 13, this is our first edition, of our soil cousins from previous seasons of Black in the Garden, just botanical Black excellence in coloring book form. I encourage you to get several, all right, for the holidays, because that's really the season that we are coming up on at the time of this recording. Of course, I like to record what we call in the industry evergreen content. But if you are hearing this at any point in time, it should be available. And, you know, like I said, particularly for the holidays, a fantastic gift is the Black in the Garden coloring experience. And we're not going to get too deep into all of the amazing features of it or reasons why you should get it, because you knew deep down in your heart that you should get it before I start saying all of this. So I'm going to leave that up to you. But other than that, support is always received in the form of sharing. Sharing is great because this is how you get to let the people them know how much you support and you enjoy the Black in the Garden podcast. Text me. You can also share the podcast, like I said, with your friends and your family. What's another way that they can support. You know the ways. You, you get ready to do something yourself. And I want you to tell us about that. You know, the way they can support you, my dear. I'm trying a new salty voice. The way they can support you is by yeah. following you and sharing your information. They can share your podcast with their aunties and their mimas. They can let their uncles and them know about Black in the garden. When I go out into the world and people see me in my forest green or my <laughs> melanin and mustard, they know that I gets down with Black in the Garden. I tell all the people, check out Cola because she be talking. She be talking that good stuff. You ain't lying. He is not lying. Following and sharing. You know, we got all the social medias. Everything is in the show notes. I made it easy for you. That's something else that is an indication of how thoughtful I am in making sure that you have every opportunity to share, engage, and support. But speaking of engagement, I got the number 813-819-3926. And I want you to let me know your thoughts on this episode as you are listening to it. Because as y'all know, I mentioned in previous episodes, one of my pet peeves about podcasting is the not receiving real-time feedback. Because, you know, as much as I be talking, I do listen as well. And I want to hear from the people who are listening, the soil cousins, y'all know who y'all are, love y'all down. 
But I want to hear from y'all about how it's resounding with you, what's hitting with you. What chocolate are you eating? I hate to ruin chocolate for you if that's the case. But, you know, sometimes we just got to ruin stuff for people. Sometimes we got to shake the table a little bit and let them know, look, somebody write about this. It is worth taking a second or third thought and being intentional about how you are consuming it, what you're consuming. It's really the ethnobotany for me. But before, just right before we get into that, Derek, what all you got going on? Instead of waiting till the end, let them know what you got going on because we want to make sure- What I got going on? I got an Instathon going on, everyone. It's going to be happening November 8th. If you are hearing this before November 8th, go to my page and follow me if you're not doing so already and share that post. It's kind of purplish and it's on my profile and it's sexy. And we're going to have a, a good old time like we did back in the 90s, okay? And then with that, there's also other venues I'm going to be doing, but you're just going to have to go to my page and check it out. So check me out on the TikToks and all of the other social media platforms, the Instagrizzles and them. And go to my website because it's going to be changing soon. Once my website guy gets done, he's been procrastinating for a while. I'm going to fire him one day, but he's family. He's me. And... um, He's me. I got to get rid of him and the scheduling guy who's also me. One day I'm going to fire all these people, but until then, I'm just going to keep with them. So that's it. That's the best you can do. You know, when you do the job, you get it done. But I am really looking forward to the Instathon in the spirit of community, supporting community, and the support that I was just talking about as far as ways that you can support Black in the Garden by sharing. Derek, you did not indicate your handles for people to... It's in the show notes, but... It's in the show notes. They they know I'm the chocolate botanist. They know I'm the chocolate botanist, and I got this chocolate chabotanist-y voice. They know who I am. Chabotany. The chocolate... Uh-huh. Chabotany. Chocolate botanist-y voice. I got it all. (laughs) So, you know, you check out the chocolate botanist on the Instagram and you'll see me there. The crazybotanist.com will lead you to everywhere. Everywhere you'll see me. Period. With that being said, we understand how we have a call to action very specifically. November 8th will be the inception of Derek's The Chocolate Botanist Instathon. And, you know, it's in the spirit of those old telethons. I am such a 90s head because of being a 90s kid that I know the vibes and I am excited about being a part of it. Like, I ain't never been a part of nobody's anything. This should be great. Now let's get into the tea of the tea. And I was very intentional about the time that we put this episode together and especially the release of this episode being right before a major candy consuming holiday. In this case, that will be Halloween, But of course, if you're listening from the future and it's another holiday coming up or you are just aware of your options for chocolates to consume, I want you to think back to this episode and definitely share it with somebody who could do that thing. You know how you don't even say, I did not know. I I never would have. I never would have. I'll tell you the truth, though. Once I was confronted with this information, it started with me getting a tip. I don't know how I did. I truly don't. But it started with me getting a tip about the presence of children in the labor force that is responsible for the cultivation of chocolate products that we consume. You know how that goes. Americans are pretty big on chocolate. The candy industry is a $100 billion industry. Okay, that's with a B. Let's start at the source. Like I said, it is the ethnobotany for me. 
Derek is an ethnobotanist by trade. Let's just touch back on that because I can never get enough of hearing you talk your ethnobotanical shit. Let's jump into it. Let's hop into this pool here. And this pool is ethnobotany. Ethnobotany, again, for those of you who are new, and this might be your first episode, is how plants and society and history kind of intertangle with each other, right? So when we're thinking of chocolate, we are thinking of this beautiful plant, Theobroma cacao. And that beautiful plant is in the family Malvaceae. The Malvaceae is what family party people in the common name? The Mallow family. We didn't and what know. else is in the... You did, you did. Y'all said it with me. Y'all said it with me in your spirit. You didn't know. And when it comes to that Mallow family, what plants are in that Mallow family that we enjoy? We think of okra. Okay, not Oprah. Okra. I like mm. it fried. We think of hibiscus or sorrel. I love them things and nice little tea. Okay. And we think of cotton, king cotton, which started slavery, which is also um, amazing how plants that are related, however distantly, still were involved in the slave trade. So when we think of the history of the beautiful chocolate play, I'm going to give you a light overview. There's a teacher I have from the University of North Carolina, NC State. She'll probably listen to this. Dr. Jillian De Giselle. She talks a lot about this and Mesoamerican ethnobotany. I love her for that. But this plant was from that Meso or Middle America lifestyle. And they used it as part of different rituals and, and a different kind of bitter drink. When the Spanish explorers came, those colonists came, and when they got there and they went to those Olmec, Mayan, and Aztec peoples, and they found out how important chocolate was to them. Just like I enjoy a chocolate person, you should enjoy a chocolate person. Mm -hmm. And these Spanish colonists, they learned to enjoy a chocolate person. They ended up saying, let's take this back to the good old place of Europe and them. So when they went back to Europe, they ended up putting their own twang on it because some people can't leave well enough alone. But we should be kind of grateful for it because they used things like vanilla, which has black ethnobotanical things and cinnamon and sugar, which again, black ethnobotanical things, all things that were eventually involved in somebody's slave trade for to the most part to make chocolate eventually what it would be today, where we've sweetened it, we've added milk, we've added different confections to it, different products to it to make it our own. So from this bitter thing that gave people energy in the high elevated areas to the thing that we eat now by the droves, even though Hershey's chocolate isn't really real because it's more wax than, than actual chocolate. But I'm sure if you go to like the original Hershey's place, they probably give you something good. It's just amazing to see that happen. But with the introduction of chocolate to those European places, led it to eventually become a plant that pushed the slave trade. Not the plant, but a plant that pushed the slave trade. So this plant was then brought to West Africa. So from the Mesoamerican people to the Europeans to Africa, this plant has traveled without legs and got there to where it was used for slave trade. Again, a lot of the chocolate we get today is not necessarily produced by a slave trade, but enough of it is. It's kind of like, this is a problem. This is an issue. This is a, a big deal. Because even with the numbers that they can give party people, we have to always consider that people can lie and fudge numbers to for any reason, however intentional or unintentional. I mean, and we're still it, waiting for Trump's tax returns, are we not? He's probably still sitting in front of his door, in front of his computer, rather, waiting on the, them to announce him to be president, to be honest. So, I mean, there's a lot of waiting. Fudging <laughs> numbers. People fudge numbers. 
People fudge numbers, which is worse than chocolating numbers. So when you get all willy-nilly with the things, anything can happen. Okay. I'm not sure what the wink was about, but where what was coming up for me in listening to that very eloquent explanation that you just gave is let's just take a moment to talk about the connection between plants and slavery. Ooh, I don't yes, feel like we ever it. specifically got into that. And I know that, as we've indicated, that this is a very ethnobotanically heavy mm-hmm. conversation. I'm leaning on you as the ethnobotanist to weigh in on that because, you know, conversation. I mean, they just mm-hmm. seem so harmless. You know, when you think about like a house plant or a cute little bean that you planted and it sprouted in people's minds in many circles, plants are a very neutral thing. It's just, hey, I, I like it. I eat it. I, I grow it. It's in my house. But lots of plants, as you indicated, okra, cotton. We're talking about chocolate right now, which is the cacao bean from the mallow family of all those sciencey words that you said I can't repeat. But... <laughs> A lot of plants have been involved in some fuck shit, if I may. And even outside of slavery, from assassination attempts or assassinations or just different rituals or different things like that, like hemlock. We could talk about that later. When it comes to or even just to the more jovial thing, like carving pumpkins and kissing your loved one underneath the mistletoe, even though I'm terribly single. I'm not bitter, but we're chocolate. So we're talking chocolate. The chocolate is bitter and I'm not. Maybe I am. Who knows? But when it comes to the interactions between plants and people, we have to think about it like this. These plants in the wild grow on their own. And that leads to whatever production of the important plant parts that we enjoy. So the actual fruiting body that eventually produces the cotton we enjoy or the buds on the marijuana plant or the leaves of the tobacco plant, or beautiful tomatoes, or wood from trees that we use to build houses and fancy wooden furniture, right? But when it comes to being intentional about that production, Mm. there's a couple of ways you can do that. Granted, farmers can go and pay farm hands and make money that way, but you can, in theory and in practice, have children be lied to as if it's Pinocchio and Pleasure Island, oh, and you tell their family that they're going to be making such and such amount of dollars, which would be pennies for us in the Americas or in most developed countries, but it's a lot of money for these people who are in need. So you have these, these vampires who are preying on people's needs, and after you have that go on, these children are kidnapped, really, misled, manipulated, and thrown into a situation where they're trafficked. They are not trafficked in a way that's cute and adorable and where they sing a little song every five minutes when a kid gets kidnapped and turned into blueberries or goes up a chocolate shoe towards has to be stretched into taffy. It's something where, if you think about it, it gets you down and there's no fizzy lifting drink, rather, that can get you up. I'm going to be doing all the references. So when it, it comes to that, it's a sad thing. So these plants are needed in large scales for someone to amass wealth or power or some combination they're in. And if you have someone who is enslaved, because these people weren't just born slaves, even if they were born in a territory that's that way, they were people who were enslaved at some point in their existence. That is now a part of that plant's history. So when folks are, are trying to say that plants are this neutral territory, that's a white privilege lie. 
that puts you into that place of pure imagination where you think you can come with me and you'll see that I'm in the world of the green and pure imagination. But in all honesty, all of these plants, like black and brown people, were stolen from their original place of origin and now sold for our pleasure and benefit. Just like you want some of these basketball players to go sit down and shut up and dribble, or you want the football players to throw that pigskin and not to kneel, or you want me to be hip and ethnic until I mention racism? Is that the same way that you want these plants to sit in the corner and be good and look good and give you what you want? And in the same way that some people fetishize the blackness of us, these plants are indeed fetishized, which again takes them out of that neutral territory. They're not in Sweden. They're not in Switzerland. They're not in Canada. They are entrenched in a miry pool of blood of black bodies who have been whipped and attacked and assaulted for our benefit. In that way, I can put a piece of chocolate in my mouth on a cold day and feel good while my four grandparents are in the same bed together. So when it's coming to that, it's again atrocious and we have to be honest with the history. There's a lot of plants that we enjoy that that enjoyment came from someone's pain. And it's atrocious to hear and to know that there are some people some of these children, let's let's be honest and call it what it is. Let's call a thing a thing, as Ileana Van Zant would say. There are some children who have never tasted chocolate. And when we say that they are enslaved, we're not saying that they're picking the beans and that's all they're doing. They are literally getting to the beans to the place of fermentation because chocolate is a fermented product party, people. That's part of the steps of getting it together. Like some coffee beans can be slightly fermented, right? Not in the sim- in a very similar way, like with alcohol, but it's just a drying, fermenting process. Those children are working. They are not in elementary school making cute paper cutouts. They are not sitting in front of Yo Gabba Gabba and uh, what else to cheer and watch? PJ Masks. Tubby Tubbies. Kelly Tubbies and the Wiggles. They're not watching Gullah Gullah Island taking it back to the 90s. They are having to work and to be laborers getting either being free labor or very severely underpaid labor, but also being beat and assaulted and possibly murdered for not keeping their collection. Yeah. And when we think of that collection, 10 pods, 400 beans can equal a chocolate bar or something like that. I had numbers up, but if I got it wrong, y'all Google this yourself and look it up because you should be doing that anyway, because there's a test after this. Okay. Ask RT Google. I want to just elaborate on the educational bit that you touched on when you said, you know, these kids, they're not going to school. I'm just looking at the resources that I pulled up, chargedaffairs.org, indicating that institutionalized poverty breeds child slavery. And when farmers refuse to split profits fairly, the enslaved children miss out on educational opportunities, preventing income and skills to circulate the economy. If they don't get to be educated and they're only involved in the production that is making somebody else rich, you see how that perpetrates the cycle of what's already happening that led them into this position, institutionalized oh, yeah. poverty. That cycle is much like the cycle of nutrition that we have in this world. You know, I like to relate things to science and give you all little topics. So it. when we think about how nutrition is moved, it starts from energy coming from the sun, that sun's energy, those beautiful rays of golden touch on a 
blade of grass or a plant that is going to be eaten by an insect or a rodent, something low on that totem pole of the food pyramid, right? In that food web. And those producers that are eaten by, again, those low-level things, those low-level things, again, your rodent may be sniped by a hawk or an owl. I love owls. Or a raptor or some type of a hawk or a snake. That snake is then eaten by something else, or maybe eventually it dies of old age. That death leads to it being eaten by some sort of scavenger, whether it's a vulture or somebody's earthworms or somebody's fungi. And those nutrition, that nutrients is then put back into the earth. And that Mm. cycle, if it's not interrupted, allows for us not to lose out on things that can go into the world. So just like when you compost and you grow something beautiful in your yard and you compost and you put that back into your yard, you're capturing a bottle, a mason jar of those nutrients. And in this mason jar that we're seeing, we're seeing people who are forced into poverty, as you're saying. Mm. That poverty is forcing them to make decisions out of desperation. And just to continue with what I was reading from this website that'll definitely be linked in the notes, when the countries are not able to grow and diversify, they remain stagnant and underdeveloped as a result of this cycle. Like you said, it's being interrupted. Cocoa exporting countries like the Ivory Coast and Ghana have created a parasitic relationship that feeds off of Western countries' chocolate consumption, fueling a strong dependency that represses development opportunities. We're talking about modern day. Like this is 2019. There was a case against the, what was it, the Supreme Court. With Nestle, Mm -hmm. y'all faves. I remember growing up and thinking that Nestle was like a wholesome thing. I mean, we all think that. We all think, again, this goes back into that plants being neutral. We Mm -hmm. think that these things are wholesome because the ugliness is hidden behind the curtain, right? Mm -hmm. Just like the Oompa Loompas hiding until they need to come out and sing a song. So with that expose coming out, it's, again, these little orange men with green hair that we can't ignore. Hopefully we can't. And we can't explain away. And we have to just sit and deal with it and decide what decisions are we going to make. With this slave labor for chocolate, there are different businesses who provide chocolate. These chocolatiers that you could go to and they have certifications that yeah. prove that their chocolate was produced without slave labor. And that happens in various other industries that produce the things we love as well. But yeah. even then, I feel like I seen something that was saying like, even with those certifications, because of how the chocolate moves and the beans are moved and again, mm-hmm. after being fermented and set up and all this other stuff, because of how things move, it's still difficult to say with a certainty, unless you are watching people like a hawk, that there weren't any slave situations going on. Because again, we're talking about slaves who are still paid, but these are not necessarily indentured servants as the Irish like to claim that they were slaves, but they were indentured servants. It's something of the essence of literally I'm paying you just because I have to, and that'll calm somebody down and I'll give you this little bit of money. And it's like when somebody owes you money and you see them in the street buying red bottoms and Gucci bags and the little, little malt, whatever the bought the big bags are that the people are buying from Beyonce. And you see them buying all these things and you say, well, where's my $10? I'm like, here, here, go on there. It's the same thing I'm envisioning with these farmers. The thing that I think myself and Cole are presenting to you with, as we give you more information, is be intentional about what you're eating and where you're getting it from. Because if you're vegan or vegetarian or you're all organic, none of that matters if some child is beaten before providing the chocolate nibs you put into your smoothie. Mm. If the cacao beans 
that you insured were sourced organically and ethically, quote unquote, were yeah. sourced ethically with some child not able to enjoy the thing that they worked all day to provide day in and day out for years. It is what it is. And this travesty goes even further because there are some farmers who grow this chocolate. The slaves, you can kind of understand, okay, they wouldn't have chocolate. But the farmers who are growing this chocolate, some of them have never had chocolate. They're growing these cacao, I should say, and they have never had the result of their labor. Imagine that. Imagine if I had acres and acres of land and I grew marijuana out the wazig and these people came and took this marijuana from me and I never had an edible, a blunt, some oil, some THC, no, none of that. And I'm like, oh, y'all use that for that? Great. I've been dropping all sorts of hints and links and references. I hope y'all get it. You talking about the Willy Wonka stuff? (laughs) Uh-huh, because I said oh, all willy-nilly. I was going to throw in some no, R. Kelly, but since no, R. Kelly touched Sharon, I can't say anything about no, him and no, his no, no, album, The Chocolate that. Factory. No. But I, I wish R. Kelly wasn't touching the Sharon, because I tell you. Uh, get him out of oh, here. Aura. Look, here's the deal. When you were talking about being intentional about how we're consuming, uh-huh. as I'm sure yes. I already indicated as well, it reminded me of... The Times very recently, because this is something that that is recently settled with me where I'm like, okay, I know. And I'm not going to do that thing where it's like, I know it's like, oh, I wish I wouldn't know that. And then just kind of act like I don't know and just keep indulging in something that I know is questionable. Right. But I just remember being in some place like a Whole Foods and going into the candy section and seeing these $6 bars of chocolate and scoffing and rolling my eyes like, why is this so high? I'm not buying this. But it's clearly indicated if you take the time to read the labels. I'm a label nerd. If you put it on the label and it's attractive, I'm going to read it anyway, especially as I'm browsing or like after I bought it. I want to read it because generally what people do on labels is they're indicating the story or something that gives you a little bit more insight about the company and why they made what they made. And so most instances, when you see that $6 bar of chocolate, you know, now that I think about it, I guess that story on there is a justification. The story is on there, but there is also the indication that, hey, this is fair trade. This is slave free. I'm pretty sure it says it on the chocolate. I just never really took note, but there's a cost to that. That's why that chocolate bar is high. Think about it like this. Obviously, when labor is cheap, when it's child labor or just any slave labor, whether it's children or not, it benefits the enslavers because it makes them that much wealthier faster because they're paying that much less for something that they should be paying for. And they pass that on to the consumers in the form of inexpensive goods. They're inexpensive because there was a part of the process that they didn't pay for. And that's fucked up. And so that is why, now that I think about it, and I'm having this realization with y'all, and I hope that y'all are having this realization with me, that that is why that $6 bar of chocolate is worth it. But also worth noting that we overconsume anyway. We are quite gluttonous as Americans or just any uh, society that has been influenced by Western consumption. And so for me, I'm just thinking about it practically for me. If I know that I am going to spend a bit more on a thing just so that I can ensure that I am taking part in this cycle of supporting something that is made ethically, rather than putting my money into these suspicious companies. I'm going to name some names, 
But if I am going to buy that more expensive chocolate, then I am going to savor it. I'm not going to just gobble it all up in one sitting. I'm going to be a bit more intentional about enjoying it and maybe even a bit more intentional about just thinking about where it came from. So I'm just glad that we're able to have this conversation because I want us to walk away from this. If nothing less, I want us soil cousins to consider that we can be more intentional about supporting ethical practices. Most deaf. And with that supporting, I want to say this, because there's some of us who are listening who may be going through financial insecurity. If you are not able to afford that $6 bar of chocolate, this website you mentioned, Cola, I went to at slavefreechocolate.org. Yeah. And I decided to see if I recognize any names in my area because there's a chocolate shop I go to sometimes and they're expensive. And I was like, why are y'all so expensive? And they process the chocolate there themselves. They ground up the husks and everything. I think they grit the cacao in. But Vidari here in Raleigh is a chocolate shop that's in North Carolina. And it's on this website is ethical slave free chocolate. So I'm like, okay, I feel better about getting this thing that I thought was overpriced oh. because I know that people who are somewhere in the line of ancestry for me, however distant that cousin may be, are not being assaulted by for this chocolate. But if you are financially insecure, if you don't have the money to afford that $10, $6 bar of chocolate, and you have to get your Hershey's, your chocolate turtles, your Nestle's, whatever that is, mm. do so. Because I get it. I understand you deserve that experience too. Oh, I appreciate that. That is very fair. And my bad for doing that thing that we do sometimes where we're like, oh, just get the $6 bar. It's no big deal. I'm not saying that I'm balling like that where I'm going out here getting these these candy bars by the cases. But what I am saying is that I will be willing to buy less of the cheaper ones or just not buy the cheaper ones at all so that I could reallocate those funds to buying the more expensive and ethically traded one. So that is another option as like a a trade up to consider. So look, here's the thing. If you are financially insecure, we understand, right? I didn't always have money. So buying a five, six, $10 bar of chocolate is hard. And again, I see a thing of a place, Bidari in downtown Raleigh that sells expensive chocolate, but they are on this list as being people who are getting their product without slave labor being involved. So it, it's worth it. But if you are not able to do that and you just have to buy your chocolate turtles, your Hershey's bar, your Nestle's crunch or whatever it may be. Or you still got some of that shit in the house anyway. Yeah, if you got it in the house, eat it. Don't waste the food because we don't waste food around here. Right. And then go from there. And if you can, when you can do better, when you can afford to do better, do so. That is such a good point because another thing that you can do is you can still share the information. You can still do the research and you could certainly help to raise awareness of this. We have to raise awareness around these kind of things because it's the silence. It's the not having people with morals expressing outrage over this ridiculous practice that really does kind of allow it to keep going. You know, that silence, that kind of hiding it, kind of like the Oompa Loompas, but we're about to get to that. But one thing that is worth noting that really grinds my gears is when I'm thinking about, just like I just said about how there's a silence around it, but there tends to be silence in action and apathy around the exploitation of Black and brown bodies. Because I thought about it and I was like, 
well, what if it was Little Billy uh, somewhere out in Scandinavia or Shredlik out there in Sweden or somewhere like that? They wouldn't let that happen. And I'm talking about white folks, the power of white outrage to make change. And if you is white and you is listening to this, then do something. Just go take your outrage and raise that awareness and see what kind of impact that you can make. But certainly worth noting that it's no coincidence that the enslavement is not of, not, not. Well, yeah, it's not. And I mean, more so than these areas are predominantly black areas. I feel like they are white children who are in Africa children who are of European descent, who appear Caucasian. And you're right. We don't see them as the missing ones. They take those nobody people. I forget the term, but there's a term for people who can just go missing on the outskirts of society and we don't really pay attention to them because they're there, so they're that. It's insane. It truly is because that population that you're speaking of, those are certainly the kids that are being trafficked. And the thing about trafficking of kids is that it is, they're not just picking cacao pods and and processing chocolate. They're also being used for sexual things and all other wacky, wild kind of things, because really the people at the top of this are actually wealthy and ill. Just shame on all of them. Shame, all caps in the largest font that I could find. So there's that. Don't want to get too bogged down in that, but just giving you lots of food for thought. All right. Cause that is my jam, but I want to get into, I would be remiss after you set up there and beautifully, beautifully integrated so many of these references to Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory into this conversation. It occurred to me in this very here conversation that there's some symbolism mm. in the Willy Wonka movie, especially when I just thought about the Oompa Loompas and how they were hidden and they only came out to do a song and a dance. What's up with that? Because I know you're an enthusiast of that. So what can you educate us on as far as that symbolism? Roald Dahl is a phenomenal author and he wrote such beautiful books as The Fantastic Mr. Fox and Marvin's Marvelous Medicine, I believe is another one. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the original name of the book, not Willy Wonka, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and James and the Giant Peach, movies of my childhood, right? When we think of this, this book, many of our childhoods, when we think of this book, there's a lot of symbolism in the actual book where, and they saw it in one of the later remakes of Johnny Depp, where, you know, he goes to Africa and India and he does all these different things. But in early versions of the book, the Loompa Loompas were actually like African pygmies. They were from Africa and they were little African short people who had a little rhyme and had a little dance because they ended up being kind of seen as bad taste. Keep in mind, I think this book came out in the 70s, if I remember, late 60s, early 70s. So it's that. And they originally changed it to, or eventually changed it where they were white-skinned, golden-haired, short people that came out and danced. But pretty much the spin was supposed to be that Willy Wonka found these things in Lumpa land or in Africa that were being eaten by all sorts of just wild animals and they had to fight and fend themselves. And I think he pretty much said he'd pay them in chocolate and in a place to live that was safe and that they just would work for him and process this chocolate. And wait, that's what I believe if I remember the book right. And to a certain point, it is because it's like he made a bartering system or a trading system 
to get stuff done. And, you know, he gave them housing and all this other stuff. That's number one, terrible. Number two, when we think of Charlie in general, Charlie Bucket is a poor kid, a very impoverished kid. His dad worked, I think, at a a factory screwing toothpaste caps on the toothpaste. And his mom basically was at home. I think she did a little work, but they basically made enough to eat cabbage every day with maybe a little bread and potatoes every so often. The house was rickety and old. Yeah, the depiction in the movie, I just remember as a child, they was poor as hell. And see, in Gene Wilder, in that Gene Wilder thing, and yeah. the Gene Wilder flick, they actually seemed a little more well off than the actual book where the house was just, again, just basically a barely boarded up shack yeah. where the wind came through at night and they just all cuddled up together. And Uncle or Grandpa Joe and Grandpa Georgina, no, George and Georgina, Joe and Josephina, they basically slept in one bed. Poor group of old people, and they just was, you know, sitting but there, how, and everybody was just trying to exist. I think that's the only bed they had, and everybody else slept on the floor. It was a really and big bed. It was a big bed, but, you know, you only had that one. And see, in the movie, again, it makes it like it's a big bed, but chances are, because, yeah. you know, for the movie, they had to throw all those people in there. But in the book, I felt like it was maybe like a queen-size or a full-size bed, and they just all got in there and just made it work. It's just this thing of just poverty and yeah. Charlie getting this chance with finding this money and getting this money to get the opportunity to do something greater. And chocolate was that avenue. And it's just coming to me now that that is how colonialism started, where these plants were seen as a way to bring one group of people out of poverty, out of a deep situation to something greater. And when you run into that thing of getting out of poverty, you're running into other groups of people. You have one person who is obnoxious and they're like, I'm going to chew gum all day. I chew all types of gum. Look at me. I work, I break records. I choose gum. Look at me. You have another person who already has money. They just want it as a fleeting thing, right? They want this chocolate factory as a fleeting thing. Veruca Salt. Yes, I was trying uh-huh. to think of her name. And it was 1964, by the way. 1964. I, I, see, I knew it was in the 60s because some of the references are dated in the book. So you have the girl that chewed the gum all day. You have the guy who said, I'm going to sit and watch TV. I'm just going to do this because, you know, TV, TV is me. I'm TV. And then you had someone Those who was kids. kind of obviously and foreign, even though he wasn't white or black, who was Augustus Goop who was Don't just hungry all the time and he was greedy. But when we think of even as... No, no, no. There's a word for that. It's in the Bible. Greedy. Gluttony. 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 Gluttonous. Cardinal said he was gluttony. He was. It's worth mentioning just because it's funny. Yeah, go for it. The TV dude, Mike TV, that motherfucker would have been a TikToker. If this was the modern day, <laughs> the 2020 see, If they remade it again, he'd be a TikToker or one of these YouTube celebrities. He would be. And he would be up there. He would yes. be on, he would be a YouTube influencer. He'd have all the stuff, all the oh, products, God. and he would oh, be he doing would be it. YouTuber. You're right. He would be YouTuber. You know, YouTuber, yeah. TikToker, or he was probably, maybe he originally started on Vine and then he worked his way up. Okay. You saw how, but you see how crazy he I, went when he was in the TV. Yeah, he, he was, was like, I could be on TV. Mind. Yeah, he was like, I'm about to be in TV. And they all had a fatal flaw of one person wanted to be seen. One person was gluttonous. One person was just straight up greedy and just arrogant. I just want it now. And then one person was like, look at me. I'm chewing this gum. I'm going to just switch to chocolate because I just need a new thing. Just as a fleeting thing. And you had this kid who was poor. They were all privileged in a way versus this poor kid. And and that's how the colonists would look at themselves. Like, I'm, I'm the poor person. I'm the Charlie Bucket of the story, bringing my family out of it. 
not understanding that you may have saved these Oompa Loompas from what you feel was a savage world, but you didn't really get them into any better place. It's just from one frying pan into another. Granted, there's not any dangerous animals in this chocolate factory, but this is all they got. Mm. And I feel like actually the Oompa Loompas in the book, they already knew how to make chocolate good. So he and them combined together. Either way, it's been a while since I read the book. But the biggest thing to remember... Just so y'all know, I I loved it. I just can't remember the detail in the way that the chocolate blackness has. And of course, you were obsessed with that book because look what you turned out to be. Look at who I was and I didn't even realize it. But here's the thing that most people don't know. Roald Dahl was actually down with a little bit of support. He had a little craziness for his time, as you know, some white folk do. But mm-hmm. originally, Charlie, little white kid, mm-hmm. was going to be a little black kid. No. He was originally going to be black. His what? wife, Felicity, I believe, said the original draft of the book, Charlie was black. Yo. And, he's and that would have changed black. the whole dynamic. That changed the whole... Well, in the books, I think they described him pretty much. He was frail and fair. But in the movies, they can definitely redo it. But it was going to be a poor black family and they would have gone against all of these seemingly white people to win the chocolate factory. No. And imagine how that would have been had no. that been the original version with the African pygmies. The black person outbeats the other colonizers, but is yet still a part of the problem because they have all these African pygmy slaves, the Oompa Loompas, whatever they're going to be, into their home. And, you know, what would you do then? Would you free them? Would you just leave them there? You know, what are the the implications therein? We know that at some point, some of us did have slaves in our own way, shape, or form back in Africa and here in these United States. It was still nothing compared to what the white folks did, but it's a thing that happened nonetheless. But Charlie was going to be black. But his agent said, nah, bro, that ain't going to work. Hold on. And and if he had did this in today's time, yeah, it probably would have been different. He probably would have been able to get away with it. Um, but back in then, oh no, they said no, bro. Early '60s, because the book is going to take a good year or two. It probably took longer than way longer back then. He wrote yeah. a lot of stuff, so he was just pumping them out. Keeping in mind, in some of the craziest things that happened in this book, people are twisted and turned and shrunk out of existence and chickens are eaten and people are described in just grotesque ways. And even in his own autobiography, where he talks about his life and the naked ship captain person or the naked person on the Navy ship who was just running around naked all the time. And he would have to just, you know, see him. He's said all of this that was acceptable, but not a black protagonist. It's crazy. So Dahl, the author, I know a lot of y'all look at his name and realize- You want to say Ronald? Ronald. It's Ronald without the end. Rolled, rolled doll. He wrote all that wild shit in his autobiography? Oh, yeah. He wrote, like, the things disappearing out of existence is like one book, Marvin's Marvelous Medicine. He ends up shrinking his grandmother out of existence. And Fantastic Mr. Fox, they describe Bogus and the other two farmers. I can't remember their names. Bogus something in Bart or something like that. They describe them in terrible ways and they're eating geese livers and their breath stinks and it's horrible. And the fantastic Mr. Fox, the aunties are just terrible people in James and the Giant Peach. And all of that was acceptable, but the Black protagonist was like, nah, bro. Like we say, 1960s wasn't the most Black-friendly time. Uh Inclusive time was actually pretty bad. But wow, what a bomb that you dropped, a trivia bomb. One of y'all, because I wanted to make a Jeopardy reference, but I really hate that LeVar Burton didn't get it. So it's like, in my mind, Jeopardy's not really real anymore. You know what I'm saying? But one of y'all was going to go on one of these here game shows somewhere. 
and have heard this episode and you're going to win. And I want you to make sure that you split that cash prize, whatever that is with us. Okay. You can go ahead and send an email to hello at blkinthegarden.com and we can discuss how we want to split that up. And you are welcome, by the way. I know. Maybe it'll save your life. You never know how this information will come in handy. We're going to go ahead and wrap up. Did you have anything that you want to make sure that our soil cousins are taking away from this conversation? You know, I always say this. You know, I like to do a little wrap up. Oh, I love it. summation. When it comes to chocolate and various other plants, there is no such thing as using these living, breathing organisms as a shield from the injustices of that that of America or the world that a lot of people of color are ancestry and some of us in this day and time still go through. There is no such thing as a, a neutral place within these plants because they're rife with the fire ants of racism, prejudice, and hatred. That is just there. And while we can often find some good butterflies of beauty and great history, those fire ants are just there still waiting to bite. And we have to accept that. So when it comes to this chocolate, the food of the gods, as it were, we have to take it with a grain of salt, a dash of milk, a little bit of vanilla, maybe some chili pepper flakes, and make of it what we will. Look at you, just ever so eloquent. And we live for it. Before we go, keeping my promise of calling out the likes of Mars, Nestle, Hershey, Cargill, Cadbury, and Barry Calabot. Um, Did you say Cadbury? Cadbury. Hell yeah, Cadbury is like a hundred-year-old company. I can't even, I don't even eat Cadbury eggs, but I can't now. Jesus. No, that shit is corn syrup anyway. But look, like you said, <laughs> this chocolate ain't really real chocolate like that. You know, all the wax and all. We didn't even go deep on that, but, you know, maybe we'll revisit it. Maybe we won't. Maybe you'll consult with Auntie Googler or some scholarly resource, starting with the references that I'm going to leave in the show notes. But yo, I did some research and I forgot to mention this at the top of the episode. I did some research a few months back with my kids where we were discussing sugar and how it's so carefully and specifically and strategically integrated into our lives in so many ways. And in doing that, we just ended up kind of going down a rabbit hole in researching the largest candy corporations in the world. And that research came to notice that many of these companies that are in this $100 billion industry are quite old, well-established, and been about this fuckery since before it was regulated in the ways that it's regulated now. They're not new to this. They are true to this. And that is a big part of the problem. But having said all of that, I feel like that is a great way for us to wrap it up. Everything that you need is, of course, in the episode notes. And I am just so glad to have had your ear. And I cannot wait to connect with you again on the next one. Until then, love, light, and soil. 